2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. Today's a Thursday, and normally on a Thursday you'd be getting a brand new core episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but a couple of us here on the team are out for a day this week, so instead we are moving up the Vault episode that was originally scheduled for this Saturday. We'll be back with new episodes of Weird House Cinema on Friday and Listener Mail on Monday – And then all new core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesday of next week. But for today, we hope you enjoy part two of our series on the tomato, originally published on August 27th, 2020.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about tomatoes. You know, there was a question last time that we uh, explored at some length, which is uh, this question you've had for a while, Robert, I think based on reading a placard at a botanical garden, which is, uh, did the people of the past few hundred years regard tomatoes as poisonous? Sometimes there's this generalization made that, you know, it used to be that everybody thought tomatoes were poison, Mm -hmm. but now we figured out that's not true. Uh, Now, of course, tomatoes are not poisonous, but it's also the historical characterization is a little more complicated than that, right?
1: Yeah. Again, it kind of depends on what part of the world you're looking at, what say you're which European nation and uh, during what period of the tomatoes um, rise to power as a global food source. Uh, But I came across
0: a great article that is by the the same author as the author of a book that we talked about in in the last episode a book about tomatoes uh, Andrew F Smith Smith is also the author of an article that was published in 1991 in the journal pharmacy and history called tomato pills will cure all your ills <laughs> and this is a fantastic <laughs> article about you know tomato pills for your jaundice
1: and your diarrhea it's a wild ride and I can't wait to get into it well, let's definitely get into it. Uh, but first, just a reminder, this is a part two. Uh, we do encourage you to go back and listen to part one uh, before proceeding.
0: By all means, part one first. Okay, so as we discussed previously, when the tomato was first introduced to Europe from Mesoamerica, of course, in uh, Mesoamerica, among Nahuatl-speaking people, it was cultivated as a food crop, and then uh, it spread from there to Europe and then to the rest of the world. But when this first happened, some European writers did claim that the tomato was was not good food. It was not fit to put in one's body. Uh, and they wrote as much in their, their culinary and horticultural treatises, though, as we talked about last time, a lot, a lot of these writers will sort of note that, well, people in Spain and Italy somehow eat these things. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless, they are not good to eat, or they're poison, or whatever. Uh, but this changed over time, and by the 1700s, Tomato use was definitely on the rise throughout Europe, especially throughout Southern Europe, though some of the old ideas still lingered here and there. According to Smith, though, within the culture of the United States specifically, and I guess this would have been you know the, the British colonies in the east of the United States and then after the revolution in the early United States, the tomato was still pretty widely regarded as in some way – you know, not good to eat, definitely through a lot of the 18th century, though that was changing. And then it underwent a relatively rapid transition during a few decades in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, So he says that around 1820, it was still a pretty widespread belief within the United States that tomatoes were somehow inedible, maybe poisonous, not good to eat. But um, he says, quote, within three decades after 1820, Farmers cultivated tomatoes the length and breadth of the country in almost every garden from Boston to New Orleans, and Americans served them on every table from July to October. According to a British observer, Americans served tomatoes every day, prepared in every imaginable way, and were the sine qua non of American existence. So that, that's a pretty dramatic shift. Yeah, absolutely. To go from poison to just the thing that you eat like crazy for its entire season. Yeah, exactly. So what led to this change in attitudes over such a relatively short time? Well, Smith notes that there were many reasons, but it seems one of the most important was quacks. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love a good quacks for good story. Okay, so as we alluded to last time, many books and supposed botanical or horticultural experts in Europe in the colonies since the sixteenth century seem to think there was something wrong with eating tomatoes. You know, maybe they were poisonous, maybe inedible. Clearly not everybody in Europe thought this way. Tomatoes were, you know, very popular in Italy and France and Spain and Portugal. And more and more people, of course, were of course cooking with tomatoes all the time. Uh, but in England, Philip Miller, who is a superintendent of the Chelsea Physic Garden, wrote in the 1750s that uh, small yellow love apples were starting to be directed for medicinal use uh, by one college in their dispensatory. And Miller, even in the 1750s, noted that, well, even some English people are eating tomatoes in soup. uh, Though at the same time, he says, quote, there are persons who think them not wholesome. (laughs) So this ambiguity still exists somewhat. But by the 1750s, it's clear that some doctors and medical students are trying, trying experiments with tomatoes as medicine, and some English people just straight up put them in the stew. Uh, and apparently an early evangelist for tomatoes in the British colonies in America was a doctor named John de Sequeira, who was born in London but educated in Leyden and who Thomas Jefferson claimed had introduced tomatoes to Williamsburg, Virginia. Jefferson also claimed that De Sequeira was fond of saying that, quote, a person who should eat a sufficient abundance of these apples would never die. Oh. Now, I don't know if he meant that in you know with a touch of irony or if he <laughs> was serious, though it does make me think that, hey, what if the humble tomato was actually the fruit of the tree of life? Because there's always been a debate about, uh, in the story of the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, what the fruits of these trees are actually supposed to be. The book of Genesis does not say in this story what the fruits of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were supposed to be. A lot of people have assumed them to be apples, but it's that's not explicitly stated. So people have proposed all kinds of answers to this question. Maybe they're apples. Maybe figs. Maybe pomegranate. Uh, I think, uh, unsurprisingly, Terence McKenna said the story was supposed to include a reference to a mushroom. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what if the forbidden fruit was a tomato?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know that that actually checks out with what we know about the origins <laughs> of the tomato. But I like the idea.
0: Yeah. No, it would certainly not check out. Like the authors uh, of the book of Genesis would not have known what a tomato was, right? Because it was from South America. But Smith points out that many of the early promoters of tomatoes in the colonies were doctors. And this is not all that surprising since tomatoes were becoming accepted during the 18th century as a medical plant. Uh, For example, James Meese, who published one of the first known recipes for tomato ketchup around the year 1812, He was a medical graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, and he wrote about how he was familiar with the culinary use of tomatoes from French immigrants who were probably uh, Creole refugees from Haiti. Hmm. But beginning in the 1820s, American physicians started to talk about tomatoes as a cure for what they called at the time bilious diseases. These would be diseases that were associated with disorders of the liver or bile, which apparently sort of became a catch all category for diseases involving jaundice, nausea, and vomiting, along with fever. You know, if there's something wrong with your guts, they, they thought you had some kind of bile problem. Smith gives a number of examples. One is a Dr. Horatio Gates Spafford who wrote in the New York Farmer, quote, That tomato sauce removed headaches, a bad taste in the mouth, straightness of the chest, painful heaviness in the liver, and improved the action of the bowels. So, hey, that's an all-in-one. Yeah. But probably the single largest influence on the tomato's image as a promoter of good health uh, was a man named Dr. John Cook Bennett. Robert, I have attached a, a sketch of him, and I noticed he, he really kind of looks a little bit like Adam Scott, but in a strange military uniform with epaulets and a sword.
1: Yeah, uh, I can see the Adam Scott. I also see a little bit of um, of, uh, of Grand Moff Tarkin here, so it's kind of like a, a combination of the two for me. Absolutely. So Bennett
0: lived from 1804 to 1867, and he's actually probably best known for his short tenure as an associate of Joseph Smith and an early leader of the Latter Day Saints movement, uh, also known as the Mormons. Before all that, Bennett was a doctor who Andrew Smith claims founded one of the first medical diploma mills in U.S. history. So he's a diploma mill pioneer. Apparently, Bennett would go around the Midwest selling medical degrees for ten bucks apiece, and I'm sure that created some awesome doctors. Yes. But it seems some people didn't really like that practice. He fell under some criticism for uh, for selling degrees like that. So instead, he accepted a position as a professor of midwifery at Willoughby Medical College of Lake Erie University in Ohio, uh, where he jumped decisively onto the tomato train. This would have been in the early to mid-1830s. And uh, Smith writes as follows, quote, In his introductory lecture at Willoughby, Bennett declared that tomatoes successfully treated diarrhea, violent bilious attacks, and dyspepsia, or indigestion. He recommended that tomatoes replace calomel because they were less harmful, predicting that, quote, "...a chemical extract will probably soon be obtained from it, which will altogether supersede the use of calomel in the cure of diseases." Tomatoes were also good for citizens traveling to the West or to the South, as tomatoes would, quote, save them from the danger attendant upon those violent bilious attacks to which almost all unacclimated persons are liable. (laughs) So basically saying like travel diarrhea, right? Like I, I this, think so. I'm not yeah. quite sure what. He, yeah. So is was there an idea at the time that if you go to the south or the west, you're going to have bilious attacks? I, I've never heard of that before. But oh yeah, travel diarrhea would make sense as an interpretation. But hey, just eat your tomatoes. You know, drink some tomato sauce on the train, and you'll be right as rain. <laughs> yeah, I have some paste. Uh, to continue with uh, with Smith's paragraph here, quote. Bennett urged all citizens to eat tomatoes raw, cooked, or in ketchup, as they were, quote, the most healthy article of all the materia alimentary. Bennett included recipes for tomato sauce, fried tomatoes, tomato pickles, tomato ketchup, and eating raw tomatoes. I don't know what the recipe for eating raw tomatoes is. But <laughs> uh, to go back to earlier, so, so Bennett is setting tomatoes up as a foil to this substance called calomel. And this reference to calomel here, calomel was a mineral form of mercury chloride that was widely used as medicine in the 19th century, even though nobody was quite sure how it was supposed to work. Apparently, primarily what it did was it, it was what they called a, a purgative, basically a laxative, um, but it would also cause mercury poisoning, and it tended to kill the tissue of the mouth and gums. So there are all these stories of... People taking calomel and like their teeth becoming loose and their mouths kind of rotting. And even into the 20th century, alarmingly, calomel powder was used as a uh, as a, a powder to be applied to children's gums as they were teething and led to these horrible conditions as a result. Benjamin Rush, uh, you know the the physician and and one of the the, the so called founding fathers. You know, he he was a big fan of calomel and uh, promoted it. I think he even tried to give some to Alexander Hamilton at some point. Uh, calomel is just terrible medicine; extremely worth replacing with something else. For example, calomel was often used to treat dysentery, but as a diuretic itself, it could speed up the dehydration process. So as you already have dysentery, you're also taking a laxative. And uh, this this actually did kill some people.
1: So, yeah, so this is definitely an example of a so-called medicine that is not only it's not just doing nothing. It is it is actively heaping more harm on top of whatever you're trying to treat.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I can't verify that it was never doing anything useful, but I think it's absolutely clear that if it was doing anything beneficial at all, the side effects were far worse than whatever it was trying to treat. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And like other, you know, mercury based things, I think it was just generally used as a cure all. It was a panacea of the time and anything that is supposed to cure everything probably cures nothing. So anyway, Bennett is offering up tomatoes as an alternative to Calomel. He's saying, hey, tomatoes can do all the stuff that Calomel does, except it without all the side effects. And so Bennett was on the tomato train. Uh, he was soon forced out of his professorship, but he did not give up on his tomato crusade. And in 1835, he repeated the claims of his uh, tomato panacea lecture in dozens of outlets. He, he wrote letters forwarding his address to farming and horticultural magazines, to household magazines, um, and he also wrote to other influential Americans to convince them of his claims, including somebody named Constantine Raffinesque, who was a medical botanist and who promoted a lot of diet-based cures. So he got some followers, Uh, other medical authorities, or at least people who were somewhat perceived as such, jumped on the tomato train with him. Uh, So I just wanted to list a couple more of Bennett's other interesting tomato claims as, as relayed by Andrew F. Smith. Ah, uh, first of all, he said that he had studied all of the ancient texts, and he uh, his studies proved conclusively that there was nowhere on earth where the tomato was not indigenous. This was not true. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, we, we we I think we we properly debunked that notion in the first episode. Uh, he also attacked the process of staking
0: tomatoes. So, it, Robert, you've got tomatoes growing in your yard right now, right? What what do you do to to get the vines standing upright?
1: Oh, you have to use like a a metal cage, and um, and then as they grow more and more gigantic, you end up, or at least we have to end up reinforcing that, and and Mm -hmm. they see, and if you're not totally on top of it, you'll still end up with the vines falling onto the ground and tomatoes just sitting there on the ground.
0: Right. So most people who grow tomatoes today, they stake them in some way. You put like a structure up and you allow the vine to hang on that, often a metal cage or a a stick of some kind. Mm -hmm. But Bennett opposed staking because he claimed it was against God and against nature and that (laughs) God had intended for tomato vines to lie on the ground. If God had meant for them to be staked, he would have had them stand up on their own. Though I think Bennett might be confused uh, about the fact that the tomato, of course, being a cultivated fruit that was sort of created by humans in a way. The original natural form of the tomato is a tiny berry. You know, it's mm-hmm. not this big, heavy, juicy thing that we eat today.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the the fruit of the modern tomato, it's especially the, in its larger forms. I mean, it's it's gigantic, it's swollen, it's breaking apart with its own juices, you know. And it's ultimately quite impressive the amount of biomass that these things produce, uh, enough to where oh, you yeah. know w- when you first stake up that tomato plant or or put a cage around it, you're like, oh man, this feels like overkill. But then a month, two months later, and, uh, and whatever structure you raised uh, might be struggling to keep all of that stuff up in the air.
0: Yeah, it turns into a precarious tower of juice. Yes. Should we take a quick break before we come back to discuss Bennett's uh, encounter with the LDS church? Let's do it.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, tomatoes as a miracle cure that at, at, uh, for just about anything that at the very least was a preferable cure-all to calomel, which was a, um, a, a dangerous mercury-based cure-all. Right. Uh, And this claim was
0: being made in the 1830s by this doctor named John Cook Bennett. Now, uh, we talked about how he started making all these claims about tomatoes and their supposed uh, health benefits and curative properties. Apparently in 1840, after he'd been making these tomato claims for a while, he was working in Illinois and Bennett got involved with the Latter-day Saints movement. He became friends with its leader, Joseph Smith. And his claims about the health benefits of tomatoes actually proved influential within the church. Hmm. But tragedy struck, and in 1842, Bennett got excommunicated from the the Latter-day Saints movement. He was excommunicated by Joseph Smith himself after some kind of ambiguous scandal involving a bunch of alleged sexual impropriety, including adultery, adultery and maybe some kind of unsanctioned polygamy with what Smith viewed as as dubious spiritual or revelatory justifications. Okay. After Bennett was banished from the church, he sort of went ballistic on Joseph Smith and then published a bunch of allegations against him in return. I think he actually accused Smith of murder and fraud and a bunch of other things. And then the two just went at each other in a full-scale PR war, Joseph Smith versus John Cook Bennett. But the interesting thing was apparently this PR war did not undermine uh the the uh Latter-day Saints movement's fondness for tomatoes and acceptance of their ideas of the health benefits that had come from Bennett. Uh so Bennett's claims proved very popular and they caught on and were repeated in lots of cookbooks, household manuals, farming and gardening journals and even in Latter-day Saints literature. Uh, and so, so there was this whole tomato for health craze that caught on big in the 1830s and continued into the 1840s. And uh, Andrew F. Smith points out that whatever his possibly dubious medical or moral credentials, Bennett was a genuinely very talented promoter. It seems like he probably could have been great in the 20th century in an advertising and marketing context. Mm. And that this contributed significantly to the popularization and normalization of tomatoes in the United States. Uh, so Bennett eventually predicted that, you know, you're, you're going to be able in the future to get the health benefits of tomatoes without even having to eat a tomato. You can just take a miracle pill that will be made from a, from a tomato extract And this prediction actually came true. Uh, In 1835, a Dr. A.J. Holcomb of Glassboro, Alabama, started producing pills made out of a tomato extract. And other pills also came on the market. Uh, Smith quotes advertising for one brand of tomato pills from a doctor named Dr. Miles. And it goes like this. The tomato, used as an article of refection, is highly medical. (laughs) highly medical and doubtless prevents many bilious attacks we inferred from this fact the possibility of preparing from it a medicine of great virtue dr miles and his associates have spent years and fortunes we understand in experimenting and finally have produced the compound extract it has been used by many in the city and out of it and is as near we can learn generally approved (laughs) But then I thought this was interesting. Apparently – so Smith cites some of the other packaging copy, and some of this copy attacks calomel directly. So it says, for example, humane physicians deplore the sad evils resulting from the mercurial practice. And remember, that's because calomel is uh, mercury chloride and will gladly hail the introduction of an article that can safely be substituted for calomel. And it goes on about how people just know in their hearts that mercury is bad, even if they can't explain why. (laughs) Um, And that you may have to choose between two evils of having of taking mercury or having a torpid liver. But now they're saying, hey, you don't have to have a torpid liver and you don't have to take mercury. You can fight your torpid liver with tomato pills.
1: Well, that would certainly be ideal uh, if you wanted to consume the uh, medicinal essence of tomatoes out of outside of tomato season. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought
0: about that. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to go through eating a mealy one in the winter if you wanted to fight your torpid liver. Um but but I will say that so while I think the tomato pill probably had very little actual medical merit especially for the bilious diseases that they were said to counteract. It seems to me that simply by being offered as an alternative to calomel, tomato pills or, or just tomatoes might have done significant medical good just because calomel was so bad. Like, So if you're taking something that does nothing instead of taking calomel and getting mercury poisoning and gangrenous flesh and rotting gums and all that, that, that actually does seem like an upgrade, even though this
1: is probably not useful as medicine. Plus, there's a, a hint of tomato to it, so it's got that going for it.
0: Oh yeah, well, I mean, I wonder if you, you know, if you're actually eating any tomato flesh, I, I wonder if uh, if you could get some placebo effect just from the fact that it tastes nice. Maybe not. I don't know. That might be reaching. Uh, but anyways but, but still,
1: so, the placebo effect is powerful. So I mean, sure. that's that's always going to be a part of, of any of these considerations.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that might be something that was at work in calomel and in tomato and tomato pills, except. Uh, you know the the tomatoes aren't full of mercury, um, so it seems that some of the attacks against tomato pills did not make the accurate charge that, or at least I, I would guess what is accurate, which is that they probably just didn't do much, but instead accused them of, say, being inferior to calomel in effectiveness. <laughs> And there were some that accused tomatoes and tomato pills of bringing on implausible side effects, side effects I would judge to be very implausible. For example, uh, Andrew Smith cites one Dr. Dio Lewis, who was a popular lecturer and a practitioner of homeopathy, who claimed to – who claimed that the use of tomatoes and their extract would cause, quote, piles, tender and bleeding gums, teeth set on edge – and loss of teeth due to salivation, <laughs> which, which sounds closer to the actual effects of calomel. Uh, but anyway, despite these attacks, tomato pills proved very popular. And by 1840, Smith notes that tomato extract was listed as an ingredient in lots of supposed panaceas, even pills that weren't just tomato pills. You know, you, you know, this is Doctor Doctor Rottenbottom's, you know, excellent uh, cure all that would list tomato extract as one of the ingredients. And this gave rise at the time to the slogan "Tomato pills will cure all your ills." There you go. It rhymes. Can't argue with that. Right. Uh, And just as an interesting side note, uh, Smith includes a few other bizarre claims made against tomatoes, uh, including one accusation. This is from the later 19th century, so not the 1840s period we're talking about now. Uh, But later in the century, there was a Dr. John Hylton who reported that, quote, tomato cells were identical to cancer cells under the microscope. (laughs) And that there was much
1: cancer where tomatoes were eaten. This does not appear to be true in any way. That sounds really, this, this sounds like when um, uh, Chancellor Palpatine is telling Anakin that the the Jedi and the Sith are virtually alike in every way.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, like, did this guy own stock in a calomel
0: company? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, but anyway by the mid 1800s basically at this point there's no going back like tomatoes had become thoroughly uh, uh, normalized and and a universally profitable crop pretty much and a mainstay of american dining tables so uh, oh, just over the course of a few decades really smith makes the case that even though the the health craze for tomatoes was probably somewhat baseless or at least you know if if there are health benefits to tomatoes It wasn't exactly the benefits that these people were claiming, Um, but that this health craze did help cement tomatoes as a universally accepted and extremely popular food in America and counteract some of the lingering concerns that might have been present among some people about their toxicity.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna basically if you're gonna take up some sort of uh, crazy new diet or some sort of um, uh, weird medication, it's better that it's not actual actually poison. Right. Yes. Uh, now, on the other
0: hand, on the subject of the health benefits of tomatoes, it is worth pointing out that there are nutrients present in tomatoes that have been investigated as possibly beneficial to health. Just one major example is lycopene. Lycopene is a carotenoid that serves as a pigment, giving the tomato its pinkish-reddish color. Uh, and there are other carotenoid pigments that are nutritionally relevant. For example, beta-carotene, the pigment that gives carrots and some other vegetables their orange color, that gets metabolized in the body and turns into vitamin A, which is, of course, a, a, an essential nutrient. So dietary carotenoids are very important for supplying the body with compounds that it can't synthesize internally. And there's long been a debate in the scientific literature about what the health benefits of tomatoes, and specifically lycopene, might be. So I was trying to check and see if there was a, a good literature review and meta-analysis of uh, of all the studies out there on, on the possible effects of lycopene. Um, the health effects of lycopene. And I found an article from 2017 published in the journal Atherosclerosis by Chang et al called tomato and lycopene supplementation and cardiovascular risk factors, a systemic review and meta analysis. And essentially the authors here found that uh, quote, consuming tomato and tomato products is associated with potential beneficial effects to health uh, current evidence indicates that consuming tomato improves some blood lipids, blood pressure, and endothelial function. Tomato consumption may potentially reduce the risk of cardiovascular diseases and mortality, and finally, the effects of consuming tomato on novel biomarkers of vascular risk needs further investigation. So uh, it seems like, unfortunately, like many things, uh, studies into the health effects of food, there have been a lot of conflicting results over the years. So the picture is not always totally clear, but it looks like on balance – the existing research indicates there probably are some good health effects uh, that follow from consumption of lycopene, a tomato product, and tomatoes in general, and uh, a lot of it has to do with cardiovascular health and blood lipids, things like that.
1: Well, it's, it's no, it should come as no surprise that not only can you still buy tomato pills from a number of different um, uh, companies, you can also buy lycopene supplements from just about everybody who is in the business of making supplements. Right.
0: Well... Uh, I would say, based on the thing on the study that I just cited, we are not advising you to go out and buy lycopene-based supplements. You know, that's the kind of thing. Consult with your doctor about that. But right. it looks like, on balance, it's probably more likely than not that lycopene does something beneficial in a cardiovascular sense. But anyway, to come back to the report by uh, Andrew F. Smith, one of the things he, he cites—I I don't have this quote pulled out, but I remember—he cites a doctor writing in the uh, late 1800s. Who said, "Look, you know all these claims about how the tomatoes affect the liver and the bile and all that—they—they probably have no basis in reality. But just go ahead and eat tomatoes because they're delicious. You don't need to consult your liver doctor; just eat them." <laughs> oh, but Robert, I have a question as we transition to our to our next little segment here—a question that I I wonder if you have thoughts on, or if your your house adheres to a set of conventional wisdom about, and that question is should you ever refrigerate a tomato
1: we are a non-refrigeration house for tomatoes now i don't think this is a rule that i knew about or had properly learned uh earlier in my life but it was one that my wife knew and so it's, it's one we've stuck to, uh, that, that, that tomatoes, they go uh, out on the counter or by the window. Uh, they do not go in the refrigerator. Though occasionally we'll get, like I say, I, I do subscribe to uh, a particular boxed meal company, and they'll send the ingredients in a bag, and I'll generally just stick that bag in the refrigerator. And sometimes it has tomatoes in there, and so those tomatoes will wind up being refrigerated but uh, like we said earlier, those are, you know, shipped grocery store tomatoes. So perhaps nothing all that uh, wonderful is lost in the, being in the fridge. But then again, I don't have any I, have, I don't have any science backing any of this up. This is just the way this is the way. And uh, that's what we do. Well, that's how so
0: much kitchen knowledge is, isn't it? Like canonical kitchen wisdom is full of these rules that you have no idea whether they have any basis. In fact, maybe they're informed by good empirical scientific research or by by real experience, or maybe they're just a hunch some chef had 100 years ago. And it's been repeated from chef to chef ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like ultimately, I don't know. It could be that if you keep the tomatoes out on the countertop, it'll keep demons out of your house. That that could be the excuse as far as I know.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, it it could be one of those things like sealing in the juices, you know, like Mm. uh, this totally not true that searing meat seals in the juices. I mean, you know, searing meat makes it taste better. The sealing in the juices is not real, uh, but it does make me think of one of my favorite onion headlines of all time, which was it was something like, Study finds average father thinks about sealing in the juices four to five hours a day.
1: Um, you know, th- this question reminds me a little bit of our um, our invention interview with uh, Jeff Beachbum Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I believe you asked uh, the question about um, uh, lemon and li- know, lime juice in particular. Yeah. yeah. Uh, about fresh squeezed lime juice. And he mentioned that some mixologists argue that it's better if the lime juice has been squeezed, but then placed in the refrigerator for a certain amount of time for a short
0: period i think he said mm-hmm. that like some mixologists think that the line, like citrus juice is better after being refrigerated for like a day or something like that but then mm-hmm. after after that it starts getting bad You'll have to go back to that invention interview to 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 hear the exact numbers but it, it was something in that ballpark but anyway so to bring it back to tomatoes for a long time the conventional wisdom has been to go right along with your household rule uh it's that you never put a raw tomato in the fridge it ruins the fresh tomato flavor it turns the texture mealy they you know the chefs would just say never ever do it and it turns out there's actually been a lot of research on this uh so I'm going to try to give you the basic rundown as best I can and summarizing some of the work of other people. So first of all, it is true that there are some measurable chemical changes that take place when a tomato is stored at fridge temperature for a number of days instead of at room temperature. Uh, Just one example is a study by uh, Zhang et al published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2016 uh, called Chilling Induced Tomato Flavor Loss is Associated with Altered Volatile Synthesis and Transient Changes in DNA Methylation. And so basically what they found is if you take a tomato, you pick it, and then you chill it for a week or so, and then you compare that to a fresh-picked tomato, the sugar and acid content will mostly be unchanged, but there will be a marked decline in what they call certain flavor and aroma compounds. These are volatile molecules that are responsible for a lot of the distinctive tomato smell and taste and they determined that this happened because when you take a tomato and you pluck it and you store it in cold storage for a week or whatever this causes a down regulation in the expression of specific genes in the tomato cells and this this down regulation of these genes slows or halts the production of these flavor and aroma compounds and uh, one of the authors Harry J Clee speaking to the New York Times explained their findings as follows quote Remove the violins and the woodwinds. You still have noise, but it's not the same. Add back just the violins, and it still isn't right. You need that orchestra of 30 or more chemicals in the right balance to give you a good tomato. Ah, that's nice. And I think, you know, there's something to that. Like, the, the, the rapturous experience of eating a really good tomato is this complex combination of kind of, like, Earthy, grassy, juicy, you know, smells and tastes that all come together as, as the, the sort of accents on the basic flavors of sweetness and sourness and savoriness that are there in the tomato's flesh. But there are some serious reasons for not just taking that research and then running straight to the conclusion. Okay. Then never put your tomato in the refrigerator because this study is looking at sort of. One narrow question and one narrow type of comparison. So first of all, if you're buying a tomato at the grocery store, that tomato has almost definitely already been chilled for some time during transport and storage. Because if you think for a minute about the brute physical necessities of the food supply chain uh, and you think about the delicacy of an actually ripe tomato – how would, how would you harvest actually ripe tomatoes at scale and then pack them and ship them to their destinations? I mean, you couldn't do it. A truck or even a crate packed full of plump, ripe tomatoes would just be this slurry of moldy pulp by the time it got where it was going, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, your tomatoes are what, likely coming from California or Florida. I think uh, Indiana and Ohio are also up there in the top five.
0: Yeah, so often large-scale tomato agriculture involves harvesting tomatoes that are still relatively hard and green and then packing them in cold storage and exposing them to ethylene gas under cold storage, which is a gas that's naturally produced by lots of fruits as they ripen. But exposure to the gas causes ripening in the storage after they've been picked, and that's how the tomatoes turn red, uh, to, you know, to be red when you buy them at the grocery store. Now, a lot of people are going to say that this process is one reason why tomatoes you get at the grocery store are often extremely inferior to tomatoes mm-hmm. that you would get at a farmer's market or that you would grow yourself or get from a friend's garden. Uh, the, the, the process is just totally different in terms of the flavor and texture that it produces when compared to a tomato that actually ripens on the vine. And some of these same concerns driving the supply and transport process have also driven the selection of particular tomato cultivars that are not necessarily the best to eat. Because when a farmer is selecting what breed of tomato to grow, they don't only have to consider what's going to taste the best to the consumer. They have to consider what can I actually get to the buyer intact?
1: Yeah, exactly. It needs to survive the journey and and, and look like something that the, uh, the, 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 the customer will actually purchase on the other end.
0: Right. Uh, but if you're able to get your hands on an unrefrigerated tomato out of a garden or maybe at a farmer's market or something, uh, the authors here of this paper, at least, they recommend not storing it in the fridge before you eat it if you want peak tomato rapture. And that advice might be good advice. But there are a number of researchers who would say that this this type of answer is actually looking at the question a little too narrowly and in a way that's not always useful to the actual tomato consumer. Uh, for example, there are a couple of really great in-depth explorations of this question on the Serious Eats website by uh, Daniel Gritzer and Kenji Lopez-Alt. And they did a couple of investigations over this uh, over the past few years. And so they did controlled experiments with blind taste tests on multiple ways of storing tomatoes, refrigerated, unrefrigerated for different periods of time and so forth. And they concluded that basically, yes, the absolute pinnacle tomato experience is probably letting the tomato ripen on the vine, then eating it immediately at its moment of peak ripeness with no refrigeration.
1: On the vine. Like, a, right, like yes. a goat man with the yes. juice
0: <laughs> flowing down your chest. Don't use your hands at all. Just face, yes. <laughs> but, 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 they say, you know, most of the time that's not how you're going to be eating a tomato. Uh, and they point out that letting a tomato go past its point of peak ripeness is also very bad for flavor and texture, and in fact will ruin the flavor and texture significantly more than refrigerating the tomato will. And also a lot of times they taste testers didn't even – notice all that big of a difference between a tomato that had been refrigerated and one that hadn't. It seemed to vary. So they came up with a set of guidelines that go like this. If your tomato has never been refrigerated, you know, so it's out of somebody's yard or a good farmer's market seller or something like that, then you want to store it at room temperature until it's ripe and then either eat it immediately or put it in the fridge and then you take it out of the fridge when you're ready to eat it. And of course, storing it in the fridge will allow it to stay at peak ripeness longer than it would stored at room temperature. But uh, they do say it's important if you have refrigerated a tomato, let it come up to room temperature before you eat it because eating a cold tomato is not very pleasant.
1: Okay, that's good. That's good uh good to know. But then the second
0: half of this is if your tomato has already been refrigerated, and this would apply to almost any tomato you would get at a grocery store or any kind of mass agricultural vendor. In that case, if it's already ripe, put it in the fridge until you're ready to eat it. If it's not ripe yet, let it ripen at room temperature. Then once it's ripe, move it to the fridge until you're ready to eat it. And once again, let it come up to room temp before you actually put it in your mouth. And I I think uh, I really respect the work they put in on coming up with these guidelines and uh, uh, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) Okay, I got a second tomato storage trick also confirmed through empirical testing by uh, Kenji Lopez-Alt. So you know how tomatoes often lose juiciness and partially desiccate as they sit out and rest? You've probably seen them like on the tops near where the stem is. They'll get kind of wrinkly and start to sag. Yes, This is partially due to moisture evaporating out of the tomato as it rests. Now, the skin of the tomato is actually very good at keeping moisture in, but the weak point is actually the stem area, the little depression where the tomato connected to the vine. And so there's an easy way to prevent moisture escaping through this area, and it is to store tomatoes upside down on a flat surface. So the stem area is sort of sealed off by the, by the soft flesh of the tomato around it. Or in fact, if you want to go farther, you can even do what Kenji did to test this theory about where the moisture evaporates from. He shows in a video that he, he put a little piece of tape over the stem depression to seal it off. And this also kept the tomato from losing juice over time. So if you want your tomatoes to stay juicy, uh, store them upside down or uh, or maybe even give them a little, little sealed hat.
1: <laughs> All right. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will explore the topic of off-world tomatoes.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey all right we're back
1: so at this point tomatoes are spread pretty much everywhere Uh, As Michael Pollan pointed out in his book, Cooked, the tomato is perhaps the most important vegetable crop in the world, with onions coming in second. Uh, As we discussed in our invention episode about ketchup, the culinary uh, invention of ketchup saw Europeans try to recreate Asian sauces with an imported fruit from the Americas, and then this weird concoction eventually returns to Asia uh, as well. I was reading an article titled Tomatoes in Chinese Cooking by uh, Rhonda Parkinson for the Spruce Eat site. And the author mentions that even though tomatoes only arrived in China roughly 100 to 150 years ago, they've managed to carve out their own niche in certain uh, Chinese cuisines, uh, much in the same way that chili peppers have found a home in numerous Asian cuisines. Examples of popular dishes, and I, I don't think I've had any of these, uh, but it was interesting that to, to, uh, these were pointed out. Uh, one is tomato egg drop soup, mm-hmm. and the other is a dish called tomato beef, which is apparently a stir fry with thick tomato wedges, like really big, thick pieces, uh, beef added, and then oyster sauce.
0: Ooh, that sounds like a, a delicious umami bomb, of course, because yeah. uh, a, a lot of natural Asian flavorings uh, are, are big umami bombs, like soy sauce or oyster sauce. They bring a lot of uh, the glutamate-based flavors. But tomatoes are also rich in glutamates and have that rich umami flavor. So yeah, that, that sounds like a, a, a savory delight.
1: It's interesting to, to contemplate this kind of thing, too, where tomatoes are like a recent enough um arrival in chinese cuisine that they haven't completely like they still have uh, you know they still haven't completely taken over or anything like that but uh, but looking at where they're utilized first like where are the the successes for the tomato as opposed to something like um italian cuisine which it's it really can be kind of difficult to imagine for, for many of us anyway to imagine something like italian cuisine without the tomato right because that's where a lot of our minds immediately go
0: yeah well i would say that's especially true of like uh, Italian American cuisine. Like a lot of yeah. the Italian dishes that became especially popular among uh, Italian Americans were tomato forward.
1: Yeah. So here's the big question if tomatoes have essentially taken over our planet, my tomatoes go beyond. Uh, being a mere international sensation, could they become an interplanetary sensation? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when the aliens get here, they're gonna, we're going to be like, oh, thank you for coming to like uplift our society and share your technology. And they're like, get out of the way. We're
1: here for your tomatoes. We're here for the golden apples. Yes. <laughs> So uh, a lot of this comes back to the basic question. All right. If we're, you know, we've discussed before a lot of a lot of uh, very uh, intelligent people have argued that the long term survival of the human race depends on us branching out and establishing ourselves on other worlds. But part of establishing ourselves in other worlds means, first of all, just being able to survive there, being able to eat there and then ultimately being able to to survive there in, there in a way where we're not reliant upon a robust supply chain from Earth. Right. Yes. The cost of getting the food into orbit alone is already incredibly high, compounded then by the cost of getting it the rest of the way, for example, to a lunar colony or to a Martian colony. That means you're going to have to grow your food at your lunar or Martian colony, uh, at least to supplement um, uh, costly uh, deliveries. If not sustain colonists completely. Oh boy, I can't wait to subsist entirely
0: on a diet of like protein that's created from algae and incubators. <laughs>
1: Well, remember in uh, Silent Running, that's just what uh, Bruce Dern's uh, crewmates were happy with. They're like, oh, this is great. These cubes of, of 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 whatever, you know, vat-grown strangeness is perfectly fine.
0: Uh, the, meanwhile, he's holding like a cultivated banana that is like the, <laughs> <laughs> the strangest product of modern
1: agricultural science. And he's like,
0: this is nature.
1: <laughs> All right. So obviously there are a number of possibilities, here, including what you just mentioned, like figuring out like what – what grows the best that we could possibly eat and let's make that be our diet Mm -hmm. um but um you know basically i guess the first possibility that comes to mind in terms of like growing things on another world is that we just bring everything with us right certainly we need to bring the seeds uh, but then when you get into the issue of water and soil things get a bit difficult because again the cost of even bringing this stuff into orbit is so high Right. So on one hand, we could potentially go the way of hydroponics and grow without soil. Uh, that's one less thing we'd have to bring up with us. Right. And perhaps we'd even be able to make use of local water. In fact, a 2020 paper by Elgin and Gunion, uh, published in the Bulletin of the American Astronomical Society argues that hydroponics might be our best option. And I'll share more on, on their argument here in a bit. But what about lunar or Martian soil? What's preventing us from growing our crops just in that stuff? Uh, you know, hey, is, is, there, is there dirt on Mars? Is there dirt on uh, the moon? Uh, why don't I just grow some tomatoes in that? Okay, I, I guess a major problem would be the lack of moisture, but there may <laughs> be other problems as well. Well, all right. Yeah, so the, the, I guess the, think of it this way. It's like you, if you're bringing water, you're bringing seeds. Could you just go out, get a big bucket load of, um, of Martian or, or Lunar regolith, bring that inside, uh, add seeds, add water, and enjoy your, your bumper crop? I don't know, actually. That's a very good question. Uh, the, the answer is no. Uh, but it becomes a, then a question of what could you do? Uh, to the soil. Mm -hmm. And uh, and on this subject, I was looking at another paper. This is a 2019 paper titled Crop Growth and Viability of Seeds on Mars and Moon Soil Simulants by Vamlink et al., published in Open Agriculture. And basically, the paper sets out to consider whether Martian or lunar regolith could be used to grow crops. Mm. Now, first of all, on the hydroponics front, the authors here argue that while hydroponics is certainly promising, you still need a growing medium. Uh, For instance, uh, mineral wool is often used. It's also known as rock wool, which is a a brand name. This is stuff that's also used in insulation, filtration, and soundproofing. But when used as a growing medium, it has to be replaced after one or more growing cycles. Um, Furthermore, not every crop takes to mineral wool all that well. So in, in other words, you'd still potentially have to ship uh, this growing medium out to your colony and depend on that supply chain. Mm. So they ultimately contend that aeroponics, in which plants grow in an air or mist environment without soil as a growing medium, um, you know, th- 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 that could be um, a-, a strong possibility. And certainly that's something that NASA-sponsored plant experiments have been looking into for quite a while. And with good reason, too. Uh, According to NASA, uh, aeroponic systems can reduce water usage by 98 percent, fertilizer usage by 60 percent and pesticide usage by 100 percent, all while maximizing crop yields. And some crops, like uh, tomatoes, have been shown to benefit from increased mineral and vitamin uptake uh, via aeroponics. Uh, According to a 2007 NASA release, tomato growers traditionally start their plants in pots, wait 28 days or so before transplanting them into the ground. However, using an aeroponic system, they can then transplant them from a growing chamber to the soil in just 10 days. And this apparently allows growers to produce six tomato crops uh, cycles per year instead of the traditional one or two crop cycles
0: now, i believe aeroponics have been used in the iss already haven't they
1: uh yeah i believe so there have been have yeah, been certainly been some experiments with, with aeroponics it, like i say it's something that it's not new in terms of uh uh nasa research uh looking at that as a solution for growing things in orbit or certainly ultimately on other worlds okay but what
0: about actually using the soil on another rocky body like the, the lunar or martian regolith
1: Okay, well, in that paper by Elgin and Gunian, they point out that there are a number of issues with the Martian regolith, uh, for example, that would have to be worked out. So, for starters, the regolith is full of perchlorates. These are chemical compounds containing the perchlorate ion, uh, which are harmful to humans and a challenge to microorganisms as well. And these would need to be stripped out of the regolith before you could plant anything in it. Furthermore, the Martian regolith is, as far as we can tell, dead. Uh, that's a stark difference from the soil we depend on here on Earth, which is a rich environment of microbial life, uh, fungi, uh, arthropods, organic nutrients. So they argue that you'd need to add something. You'd, you'd need to essentially resurrect that soil. I mean, you'd resurrect that regolith to make its soil. You would need to add something like worm castings to the mix. Now, that's essentially the refuse of earthworms that are just packed with bacteria, enzymes, and remnants of plant matter and um, excrement. And you can actually, this is stuff you can buy for your own garden uh, at gardening supply stores. Wait, you just get a big container of earthworm poop? Well, it's called, it, it says worm castings, but that's essentially what it is, yeah. Nice. Nice. So anyway, yeah, the Martian soil is sterile and this would be a way to sift some life into it. Anyway, they go on to explore hydroponics in greater detail, uh and but then uh, to come back to tomatoes for a second, we should note uh that the golden apples of Terra can be grown via hy- uh, hydroponics and aeroponics. So both of the if, if either of those turned out to be the way as opposed to uh doing something to the soil on uh, on the moon or on Mars, uh it sounds like the tomato's future would be bright. Now, to come back to the Vaimlink paper, um, that study, basically, they wanted to see if we're going to use regolith, what plant species might grow there best? Uh, now, since there is no regolith available here on Earth, we don't have any. Uh, we don't, you can't go and get a, a, an actual pot of lunar or Martian soil to experiment with. Uh, they decided to use the next best thing, which is NASA's Mars regolith simulant, JSC Mars 1A. <laughs> okay. There's actually there are actually several different versions of Regolith uh, simulant out there. Uh, Like this one is JSC Mars 1A, but there's also one called JSC 1A that uh, is the lunar version. And there are some other varieties out there. Um, Mars 1A is based on info gathered from the Viking landers and the Mars Pathfinder rover. And it's pretty interesting stuff in and of itself. This one in particular is gathered from the Pu'unene cinder cone on the big island of Hawaii.
0: Oh, okay. So that would be it. Would be like a volcanic soil base.
1: Yeah. So anyway, the researchers in this study they used a nutrient solution made from a grass used as a cattle fodder to enrich the soil, and they cultivated ten different crops: uh, garden cress, rocket, tomato, radish, rye, quinoa, spinach, chives, peas, and leek. And they uh, simulated the properties of lunar and Martian regolith, and also normal soil, uh, potting soil from Earth as a control. And of the 10 crops, uh, spinach was the only one that was a complete dud. Hmm. Uh, Chives and leeks grew steadily but didn't produce much. Quinoa didn't produce seeds, which is a bummer because you want your off-world crop to also produce seeds for the next generation. Again, you want to be as removed from that uh, supply chain back to uh, the home world as much as possible.
0: Right. So you can eventually secede from Earth and declare independence. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, total biomass was highest uh, for the Earth control trays, obviously, but also the Mars trays were pretty high. Uh, lunar tray was uh, the worst. And the seeds of three species—radish, rye, and garden cress—were tested successfully for germination. Hmm, so cool. th- those were ultimately the most promising in terms of, of um, you know, continuing to to grow without uh, more seeds coming from home. Well, I know you're. G- you've got to get to the tomatoes. How did they do? The tomatoes did pretty well. They were the top biomass producer and a lead author here, of uh, Vamlink, is quoted as saying that they were thrilled when the Martian tomatoes actually turned red. Whoa. And there are other studies and programs looking at space tomatoes as well. One I came across is uh, an operation known as SPACE. Um, it's that, an acronym. Uh, it's an acronym. Yes, it's probably one of the more amusing acronyms I've run across uh, recently for the show. It is the Small Plants for Space Expeditions Program. Um, uh, So it's from the University of California, Riverside. And uh, what they've done is they've developed a tiny tomato plant uh, that feature minimal leaves and stems, but produce a normal amount of fruit, though in smaller packages. So in other words, more biomass is invested into the edible portions of the plant and they also, this also minimizes resources and energy consumption by producing fruit more quickly than conventional plants.
0: Oh, yeah. I hadn't even really considered this. But it, it makes sense that if you were trying to take crops to colonize uh, you know, on a space station or another planet, you could probably work back home to try to engineer sort of the perfect version of the organism to take with you.
1: Yeah. And they also point out that this, this is not only something that could be utilized, uh, in a, you know, orbital or otherworldly environment, but also it's ideal for vertical farming here on Earth. Again, think to those big tomatoes, you know, because we end up trying to do some form of vertical farming, uh, sometimes via our steaks and tomato cages, and they're just so darn heavy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea here is, is make, everything else about the plant smaller focus on the tomato itself but also the tomato is less hefty as well well hey i got no problem with small tomatoes as i've said before i mean uh often the
0: best tomatoes you can get under less than ideal conditions such as like the supply chain that gets tomatoes to a grocery store are going to be cherry or grape tomatoes that they may be small but they get a lot of flavor for their size
1: Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the space team developed uh, these tomatoes not uh, via selective uh, breeding, but via CRISPR case nine gene editing technology.
0: Yeah, I I don't know if we've really gotten into into the use of CRISPR gene editing in, uh, in agriculture, but obviously this would be huge.
1: Yeah, we often, when we're talking about CRISPR, and when I say we, not just us, but you know, just sort of media in general and the public, we're generally asking the question, what about humans, though? What about humans, though? But right. we should occasionally say, stop and ask the question, what about tomatoes? And <laughs> right. uh, here we are. So on top of those, uh, the biomass uh, tweaks, they're also looking at a couple of other tweaks. Um, For example, uh, an increase in the photosynthesis rate, because this would help replace CO2 in an enclosed environment with fresh oxygen, which would be ideal for any uh, onboard animals such as human beings. Right. So there seems to be a lot uh, you know, of interesting possibility in all this tweaking alien soils to better support terrestrial food plants and also tweaking those plants to better capitalize on those environments and better serving the energy demands of the humans who bring them there. Robert, I just thought of a complication here. So we're talking about on on the surfaces of other
0: planets with normal gravity, but Mm -hmm. if you were to try to grow tomatoes in microgravity, say on the the ISS, then potentially you could grow tomato plants with big fruits that you wouldn't have to stake or or put in a cage, right? Because they wouldn't be dragged down by gravity.
1: Well, that's true, yeah. but I guess on on that front, I wonder about you know because we, we've all seen those tomatoes that just get so big they're just bursting, right but I guess on the other hand, you'd probably be keeping a pretty close eye and i mean in on the ISS they run a pretty tight ship, and oh, yeah. uh, I imagine that would um, th- that would also be the case with any kind of a tomato garden up there.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I wonder if the tomato would be kind of bouncing around in whatever its enclosure is, yeah, yeah, I don't know keep it in mind i also wonder though how gravity affects um so there's something about the shape of a tomato that seems like it would somehow be influenced by the presence of gravity and that it's a very heavy fruit and it's got a lot of moisture in it and i wonder if like you know that it's necessary for the moisture to be weighing down toward the bottom of the tomato for its morphology to resemble the tomatoes we know
1: that's true. You know, so we might end up with a more spherical tomato. Is that what you're saying?
0: I don't know. Maybe yeah. or more. Maybe a more top-heavy tomato.
1: I wonder. Yeah. Or maybe it'll be. You know. Ultimately, we 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 missed the uh, the point made years ago, and that it's going to be Mickey Mouse shaped watermelons. Like that's <laughs> that's the future of of fruit in space. I love it. All right. So there we have it. Uh, as we said, you know, we we did not have space in these episodes to discuss the entire history of human and tomato interaction, Uh, nor did we even really get to to touch on on everything that's going on with tomato science, tomato research, et cetera. I mean, it's a massively juicy field. Uh, I'm sure there's (laughs) a lot we could come back to. That's right. So uh, anyway, hopefully, though, it gives everybody a a lot more to think about when they uh, inevitably engage in, with to, tomato-based cuisine and hopefully as you uh, enjoy some fresh tomatoes or at least reasonably fresh tomatoes this growing season
0: yeah it's a short window every year it's a precious time so so get them while you can
1: all right in the meantime if you want to listen to more episodes of stuff to blow your mind you know where to find them wherever you get your podcasts that's where they are and uh, wherever that happens to be just make sure you rate review and subscribe if you have the ability to on those platforms
0: huge thanks as always to our Excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, or to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. work.